If you have your Bibles, I will invite you to turn with me to John chapter 13. John 13, beginning in verse 18. If you didn't bring a Bible, I would encourage you to follow along with the Pew Bibles. You can find that there on page 956. And if you don't own a good Bible, please take that as our gift to you this morning. John chapter 13. Have you ever noticed that people tend to look back on history and read it favorably? We do this in a few different ways. We tend to look back and interpret the past to justify something we already believe. This is called confirmation bias. Or we tend to look back on the events of history and assume that we are more moral, more intelligent, more advanced. C.S. Lewis famously called this chronological snobbery. We also have the tendency, this is related, to look back on the events of human history, especially horrors that have been committed, and we just naturally assume that we would have been on the right side of it. I'm sure there's a name for it. I don't know what it is. I'm going to call it hero hindsight. Like it's easy 75 years later to sign up in your mind to help the Jews escape from Germany. Nobody looks back on the Holocaust unless you're anti-Semitic and thinks, I probably would have vandalized some of their stores. No, we're inclined to think we would have protested the ghettos. We would have helped liberated the camps. We would have never followed orders. Take genocide, take slavery, take mass murder across the state. We tend to look back and we naturally assume that we would have been the heroes or at least stood with them and not have played the villain. It tends to not even register in our minds that we would be capable of such things. We want to, in fact, as much as we can, put distance between us and them. I was recently this week actually at a lunch with a pastor whose children just earlier this year were at a school where there was a mass shooting. His kids, by the grace of God, survived. But you can imagine the kind of platitudes that float around after an event like this happens. I don't mean saying the right things at the wrong time. I mean saying the wrong things. A common thing that the children were told in the community was that you're different than the shooter because you are a good kid. You're different from the shooter because you're a good kid. His pastor and his wife told us how they had to gently instruct their kids that actually you have more in common with them than you want to admit. You're both made in the image of God. You both received a similar education. You both will be held accountable to the gospel that you've heard. And the same sin that ran deep in them runs deep in you. We're disinclined from thinking that given the right circumstances, we might have participated in those evils, and yet people carried them out willingly. In John chapter 13, we find someone about to execute the most treacherous, monstrous, villainous act in all of human history. We would read the text wrongly if we think we're not capable of doing the same thing. In fact, we see people already, it feels more commonly, turning away from Christ. John chapter 13, I think, gives us a microcosm of the church age as many who walk with us now will betray us later. As some will fall away for a season. Brothers and sisters, don't be lulled into thinking that you might not be tempted to do the same thing. How do we hold fast to Christ even as those around and within us fall away? What do we do when it looks like we're losing? These are some of the questions that we'll ask of the text this morning. would encourage you to keep them in mind as we read. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 18. If you are able, I will invite you to stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. Verse 18, I'm not speaking about all of you. I know those I have chosen, 
But the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. Truly, I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me. And the one who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus has said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. When Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. The disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining close beside Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who it was he was talking about. So he leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus replied, he's the one I give the piece of bread to after I have dipped it. When he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. After Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what you're doing, do quickly. None of those reclining at the table knew why he said this to him since Judas kept the money back. Some thought that Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the festival, or that he should give something to the poor. After receiving the piece of bread, he immediately left, and it was night. When he had left, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you, where I'm going, you cannot come. I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You can be seated. We pick back up in what has historically been called the upper room discourse. Jesus, as we saw last week, just washed the feet of his disciples, demonstrating to us his love. He's given us a picture of his sin-cleansing work, and he did so to model what he expects from his people, humble service. The key to grasping these chapters as we've moved away from Jesus' public ministry to his private ministry, as we are leading up to his passion, is one word. It's preparation. Time has slowed way down. Jesus is preparing his people for what is going to look like an abysmal failure. It's going to look like chaos. We, of course, have the hindsight. We have the benefit of historical hindsight. But try to put yourself in their shoes to think about what it would have been like. Someone that you have been walking with for years, that you've eaten with, that you've laughed with, that you've prayed with, that you've ministered with. He sells Jesus Christ for silver. And then your religious leaders, whom you followed your entire life, they try him as a criminal. And then your occupying nation, who could crush you without effort, crucifies him like a criminal. The one you thought was your rabbi and Messiah hangs to die. It will come like a shock. Jesus is preparing them for Judas' departure, for Peter's denial, for Christ's death, all of which look like defeat, but they're not. We often find ourselves in the same kind of position where it looks like the church is losing. How do we persevere? What do we do as we see our friends leaving, as many are altering the faith, as leaders fail us, as numbers decline? How do we hold fast to Christ even as those around us and within us fall away? And that's our question this morning in lieu of a big idea. How do we hold fast to Christ even as those around us and within us fall away? 
How do we hold fast to Christ even as those around and within fall away? What do we do when it looks like we're losing? Four encouragements from the text. Trust Christ's providence. Look to Christ's passion. Love Christ's people. And fear your pride. Trust his providence. Look to his passion that is the cross. Love his people and then fear your own pride. How do we persevere when it looks like we're losing? We trust Christ knowing that he's the sovereign one. We look to his cross seeing that it completely flips upside down our notion of success and wisdom. We love his people which is the place of salvation and we fear our own pride seeing that we're tempted to go the way of Judas and Peter. First, trust Christ's plan. The first thing that Jesus wants us to grasp in the text is that things as chaotic as they appear are going according to plan. God is moving all of human history to the cross to save the people for himself. We begin in verse 18, Jesus is speaking. He says, I'm not speaking about all of you. Now we're jumping into the middle of a conversation, obviously. Christ's words from the preceding section don't apply to all the 12. Not all of them are clean, verse 10. Meaning not all of them have been made new. Not all of them have been forgiven in Christ. Why? Verse 11, he knows that one of them will betray him. His words don't apply to all of them in the same way. They're not all his servants and subjects. Not all of them will do what they know, verse 17, and be blessed. One of them will not. Again, verse 18, I'm not speaking about all of you. Why? I know those I have chosen. Jesus is preparing his people by giving them insight into God's special providence. He's pulling the veil back, as it were, before it happens, that they might trust him. You see, Judas's betrayal is not a sign of Christ's failure because Jesus never chose him for salvation in the first place. If Christ had chosen him for salvation, if the Father had given Judas to the Son, if Christ had took his sins to the cross, then Jesus Christ would be a failure. Brothers and sisters, we would have no assurance about where we are going. The reality is that Judas betraying Christ is not surprising if you have a robust and biblical understanding of the doctrine of sin. Judas is just doing what's natural for the sinful man. He willingly turns away to, from God to profit himself. The actual shock is that the other 11 didn't join him. Why didn't they? Verse 18, God the Son chose them in eternity past to be the objects of divine love. The answer is sovereign mercy. Jesus' plan is unfolding not as he crafted it the night before, not as he decided when he became a man. He doesn't have a plan B now that Judas is leaving. No, it's going as it was designed in the divine mind before time itself began. It was prophesied long ago. We see that in verse 18. Jesus references Psalm 41. Christ is foretelling it now, verse 19, so that when it happens, you'll believe that I and he, as counterintuitive as it sounds when Judas falls away, it actually should lead them to trust. He told us this was going to happen. In 2009, with the second pick of the NBA draft, the Memphis Grizzlies selected, tell me if you know it, Hashim Thabit. He was heralded to be the next uh, Dikembe Mutombo, an amazing basketball player. Unless you're a diehard Grizz or NBA fan or his mama, you probably don't know his name. And that's the point. He would go down as one of the biggest busts in NBA history. The Grizzlies chose him over James Harden, over Steph Curry, two prolific players who are continuing to play. To make matters worse, they picked him at center. That's the position he played. When they already had Marcus Saul, a future Hall of Famer. Draft analysts, they speak with so much confidence about a player's future, but they really don't know. They're making educated guesses. 
Sometimes you make such a bad choice, a historically bad decision, that you go down as the Hashim Thabit guy. How trustworthy would someone be if they could tell you beforehand how the players would turn out with 100% accuracy, right? All-star, solid bench player, the GOAT, bust. You see, Jesus didn't draft a team of disciples based on analytics, but divine sovereignty. Judas isn't his Hashim Thabit moment. He chose the 11 for one purpose and one for another. Jesus told us this in John chapter 6, verse 70. He chose the 12 knowing that one of them was a devil. What this should do for us is instill great confidence in us. That's why I think the section begins with this. Jesus never loses any of his people. His odds aren't pretty good at 11 of 12. No, John 6, 37, as we saw in that chapter, Jesus says, everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. He receives all that are given to him, and he keeps them all, John 6, 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. He doesn't lose a single one. Judas is not an exception. As hard as this is for us to grasp, the 11 and Judas were both chosen for different ends, but in different ways. With the 11, with the elect, God is acting positively to overcome them. He's not giving them what they deserve and giving them what they don't deserve. In the case of Judas, God is simply giving him what he wants. Jesus begins this section, I think, to give us comfort as we head into what is going to feel very sobering. But brothers and sisters, know that if you have placed your trust in Christ, that means you are secure in him. You were chosen by him. He came into this world for you. He took your sins to the cross. You have received one another, and he will not let you go. He doesn't lose a single one. The fact that so many have and will continue to fall away from Christ shouldn't cause us to doubt his power or ability, but only to distrust our own flesh that we might run to him more closely for safety. Christ told us this would happen with Judas so that we would believe that he is the one. Christ tells us in Scripture that this will continue to happen. Paul wrote 1 Timothy chapter 4. And now the Spirit explicitly says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. You see, from Judas until today... It is demonic influence that leads people away from Christ. People will fall away from the faith. John, our own gospel author, he wrote to Christians who were experienced in Exodus from their own churches in 1 John. He writes, this is verse 18, Children, it is the last hour, and you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, and now many Antichrists have come. By this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be clear none of them belonged to us. The temptation for us is going to be that as Christianity experiences visible loss in the U.S., and I suspect that it will, we will be inclined to think that we are wrong or losing or both. We're not. It simply means that God was right. As we've seen, he told us who he has chosen. He's told us people will depart from the faith. He's told us their departure proves that they were never really with us. As strange as it seems, things are going according to plan. There are more benefits than are apparent to us. But one is that as people leave us, we are reminded that We've not made it to heaven. We are in the world. We are reminded that our sin continues to pull us back into the world and away from Christ. We are reminded that we need the grace of God as badly today as we did on the day we believed. Christ has told us it will happen. We shouldn't be surprised. 
Now Jesus goes on explaining what's about to happen. We see that in verse 21. He says, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Now if you look down at verses 20 through, 22 through 24, the disciples don't understand what's going on. Peter's motioning to John like he's doing charades to try to figure out. You're like, two words, plus one, one, one. Like we got to figure out who this is. Ask Jesus. Why doesn't Peter know who it is? It's because Jesus hasn't told him. Here's one of the more sobering things, I think, in the Gospel of John is that Jesus, again, in John chapter 6, told them that one of them was a devil, but he never told them who. We don't have radars that tell us who it is that has saving faith. This is not a hindrance to the Christian life. Rather than leading us to confusion and chaos and despair, what it should do is to cause us to live by faith. It should lead us to distrust our flesh. It should force us to cling more closely to Christ. It means that we have to trust Jesus. This is the Christian life. In fact, John, our gospel writer, gives us such a wonderful picture, I think, of what it means to trust Christ and his plan. We see this in verses 24 and 25 as he presses more deeply into the bosom of Jesus as he takes a question to him, no doubt with his fears and confusion. Okay, I want to explain this kind of eating setup quickly. I think this will help us visualize what's going on. Jews ordinarily sat in chairs and ate at tables just like us, just like you'll do for lunch today. But for very special occasions, like the Passover, they adopted a Greco-Roman habit where they ate at a table the shape of a U, or they would push three tables together, shape of a U, on the ground, and they would recline on cushions, okay? So it's like a special occasion kind of thing. You go to a friend's house for dinner, you see they busted out China, you're like, fancy. You walk in, you see the table on the ground, you know, like, this is a big deal. So Jesus and his disciples, the way this works, if you can visualize it, capital U, you recline on your left arm, you eat with your right and your feet, because there's nowhere, it doesn't go under the table, it lays away, okay? Your feet recline away from the table. Judas, as it appears, is to the left of Jesus. That's why he can hear him so well. He's in a seat of honor, and why Jesus can so easily hand him the bread that he's about to dip into wine. John, it, we know, is to the right of Jesus, and it appears that Peter is to his right. This is why Peter speaks to John to get to Jesus. This is why the most natural way for John to speak to Christ who's behind him is by simply resting his head upon his chest. More literally, he presses into his bosom. He goes to Christ in a moment that seems chaotic and confusing. He goes with his fears about the future and with his sadness, he presses in to his master and friend's chest and says, Lord, who is it? Now here's what I think John wants us to see. John describes his relationship with the son in the same way that he describes the son's relationship with the father at his bosom as the loved one. Jesus is the loved one. We see that in John 3.16. Jesus is at the father's bosom, John 1.18. No one has ever seen God the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side. That's how the CSP renders it for us because we don't use language like bosom very often or ever. More literally, who is himself God and is at the Father's bosom. He has revealed him. John is grasping for words to try to describe the relationship between the Father and Son. The Son who is God's wisdom and word. The Son who eternally proceeds forth from the Father, not as a different thing, but as God as Son. His words fall off the page, so he uses a metaphor. The Son is eternally in the bosom of the Father. He comes from him. He's closer than close. Three times a day I share the same moment with my son, my seven-year-old son, Haddon. First thing when he sees me in the morning, usually when he gets off school or I get off work and then right before bed, he runs to me. And if I'm sitting or laying down, he jumps onto me. I pull his head into my chest and I hold it for as long as he'll let me. 
we're having a pot like this afternoon with members of the church. I can promise you how I will not be greeting you. <laughs> Why with Haddon? He's flesh of my flesh. He bears my name. He's my son. In an act of staggering generosity, Jesus doesn't just cleanse us of our sins. He calls us to have the same kind of relationship with him that he has with the Father. Closer than close, safer than safe, as loved as you can possibly be. John knows it. He trusts him. He presses in in a moment of chaos and confusion and fear. He presses into his friend and Lord and asks him a question. Brothers and sisters, is this what your relationship with Jesus is like? Do you run to him? Do you leap to him? Do you let him pull you in closer than close? When you're confused about life, when you're anxious about your safety, when you're uncertain about God's people, when your leaders fail you, when God's plan seems dark, do you run to Jesus? Do you rest in him? Do you even know that he's calling you? That he longs to be with you, to strengthen you? Do you trust him? John, far from fleeing as things seem to be going sideways, he presses into the only one in that room that he can trust. The one who knows the answers because he planned it. The one who in love has come down to save us and will protect us to the very end. This is what we do when we're confused or afraid or it looks like we're losing. We don't run away from Jesus to critique him at a distance. We cling to him and trust his providential care. John gives us a model. We are to trust the providence of Christ, seeing that he always works for our good. Second, we look to Christ's passion. Look to Christ's passion. Jesus' cross completely flips upside down all of our notions of success and victory and wisdom. Jesus replies to John's question, his loved disciple, and says, He's, that is my betrayer, the one I give the piece of bread to after I have dipped it. When he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. Take note again of the generosity and of the mercy of Jesus Christ. His final gesture to Judas is a gift. It's a gift of food that symbolizes, as he just heard, what God the Son has come to do for sinners. He gives him a gift. From the garden, from the first meal in the garden to the last meal in the upper room, God has always offered us what we need and Satan always tempts us towards more. Don't miss this. Judas had a choice. There's only one person in that room other than Jesus Christ who knows what's going on, and it's Judas. With every second of the meal, as Jesus explained what the broken body and wine would symbolize, as Jesus is washing his feet, Judas has been given opportunity after opportunity to repent at the mercy of Jesus Christ. He's given a choice. Since John chapter 6, verse 70, as he was identified as the devil in his own mind, he had a choice. This is what he does, verse 27, after Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Verse 27 is honestly a bit jarring for our modern ears. You probably think of like the exorcist or something. The reality is Judas has always been under the authority of Satan. We were born this way. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, speaking to the church there in Ephesus, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. Judas was born under the authority of Satan, but here after a series of choices, he's turned further and further and further away from God. And in what is an almost anti-conversion moment, he finally surrenders himself to Satan. He's always been under his authority. He gives himself 
to his work fully. And then John illustrates for us who have been walking through the gospel of John and understand the imagery. He gives us an illustration of just how dark his departure is in verse 30. After receiving the piece of bread, he immediately left and it was night. Judas walks away from the light of the world back into darkness forever. Brothers and sisters, to turn away from Jesus Christ is to return to the domain of Satan. Don't be fooled. To reject Christ is to choose the devil. It is to give up life for death. And yet even here, Christ's plan, again, it's unfolding perfectly. God the Son must die. Look at what he tells Judas in verse 27. What you're doing, do quickly. Even as he's being betrayed, he's not a victim. He's Lord. Verse 31 John goes on, when he had left, Judas said. Okay, here with the betrayal of Judas, with his departure, the final step is put in motion. You should feel the urgency increasing as Jesus' time with his disciples is slipping away. You know like in a movie when there's something ominous about to happen, like a parent knows or like a, used to be a spy or something, they're hiding out, their kids have no idea, but they're about to explain to them something's going to happen. Okay, I think of Taken... Brian Mills, that's uh, Liam Neeson. He's speaking on the phone with his daughter. Okay, their apartment in Europe is being uh, invaded by people. And then in an unexpected and chilling moment, he tells her, the next part is very important. They're going to take you. With the departure of Judas, we've entered the, they are about to take me phase. The next part is very important. Okay, far from what is about to appear like failure is the revelation of the glory of God. Verse 31, now the Son of Man is glorified. Now that everything has been put in place, the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Glory, especially as it's used in the Gospel of John, is about the revelation of God and his honor. Jesus is speaking about the cross and his resurrection, where he will be revealed as God and honored. But notice, Jesus is speaking about what will happen as though it already has happened. Why? Because from the divine perspective, it's as good as done. The cross and the resurrection are a certainty. The only thing that stands between Jesus and victory is time. There is no question about what he might try to accomplish. No, he will die for the sins of his people and he will leave their debt on the cross. He will walk out of the tomb and leave our death behind. In doing so, he glorifies God and God glorifies him. The son is revealed and honored. Far from being a picture of failure, the cross in John is the place where Jesus Christ is revealed as God. Why is the cross a place of glory? Because at the cross, God does what only God can do. It's at the cross that sins are blotted out. It's at the cross that justice is satisfied. It's at the cross that Satan is subdued. It's at the cross that death is defeated. It's at the cross that heaven is opened up. It's at the cross that the curse is undone. It's where love overflows. It's where wisdom is displayed. The cross is where Jesus Christ reveals himself as Israel's God and King. He does so not by crushing his rebels, but by being crushed for them. The Father is glorified as the Son demonstrates he's worthy of obedience. The Son is glorified as the Father vindicates him from the grave. What looks like shame at first glance shouts of glory. This was always the plan. Now the point for us especially is that what often looks like defeat for the church as well isn't always so. Jesus' cross is not just the means of salvation. It gives us the paradigm of salvation. Like it might look like the church is losing as people are turning away, but in reality... 
the church is gaining clarity about who believes and who needs to be evangelized. Brothers and sisters, a church in America that is best poised to reach the lost is one whose membership is not filled by them. The cross of Jesus Christ completely flips upside down our concept of wisdom. It's actually weakness that's power. It's folly that's wisdom. Dwindling numbers even might just mean that God is pruning us and maturing us and preparing us for a clearer mission. Brothers and sisters, we should trust the providence of Jesus. We should look to his cross seeing that he completely redefines what success and wisdom look like. And thirdly, we should love Christ's people. We should love Christ's people. Notice that as Judas turns away from Christ and his people, as Peter is about to fall away for a period, the place that Christ turns his disciples is to one another. We see that in verses 34 and 35. He turns them to one another. As our friends turn away from the faith, the answer, brothers and sisters, is not to flee the people of God, but to press in more deeply to healthy churches. To walk away from the people of God is to walk into danger. It is to leave the place that proclaims and protects and pictures the gospel for the world to see. Cyprian put it so well in the third century, he said, there is no salvation outside of the church. He's not saying that because we're saved by the church. He's saying that because we're saved into the church. The church is the means by which God preserves us to the end. Again, as Calvin quoted him favorably in the 16th century, no one can have God for his father who does not have the church for his mother. To turn away from the place where Christ is made manifest on earth is to turn away from Christ himself. Jesus is to be found among his people. To leave him and them is to follow Judas into the night. Brothers and sisters, you will gain no clarity about the truth in the darkness. Jesus calls the people, his disciples, to press more deeply into one another. And he gives us a central task. We see that actually in verse 20. Jesus says, truly, I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. Christ Jesus has sent us his people, and whoever receives us receives him. Whoever receives him receives God. Put negatively, to reject the church and its gospel is to reject Jesus, which is to reject God. Brothers and sisters, we are God's representatives on earth. We have been given the holy calling of being his ambassadors. Jesus has kept us in the world, as we'll continue to see in the gospel of John, so that he might draw more people to himself through us. The church is supposed to function like an outpost of heaven in the world. This is where the new creation lives. This is where God preserves the people of salvation. You see, the message that we proclaim matters. We know this. It also matters how we live. And this is what Jesus is really getting at. We see this in verse 34 as he's trying to prepare his people for his departure. Verse 34, Jesus says, I give you a new command, love one another. Now, why does Jesus call it a new command? We see in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're commanded to love the Lord our God with all that we are. We see in Leviticus 19, 18, that we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus confirmed that these are the first and second great commandments in Matthew chapter 22. What's new about the commands is the standard of love and its source. Jesus says, look again in verse 34, I give you a new command, love one another, just as, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Brothers and sisters, we are not to grade love on a curve. The standard of Christian love is God the Son setting aside divine prerogative to become a man, to lower himself further still like a slave, to wash our feet and finally to die upon the cross like a criminal. 
the gospel gives us a picture of love. Romans 5.8, it's while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. Why does the gospel show us love? Because God did all of this with nothing to gain. Do you realize that God did not become more glorious because of the gospel? He didn't become more fulfilled or happier or satisfied by having made and then saved us. God is not fulfilling some kind of lack within himself such that he needs us. He made us and saved us so that we might delight in his goodness and glory forever. The gospel adds nothing to God and everything to us, even though it cost him his son. That is love. Jesus commands us and invites us to mimic divine love. You see, in love, if you want to think about what it is, in love we consider the good of others, we sacrifice for that good, and we do it to the glory of God. We consider what's good for someone else, we sacrifice toward that end, and we do it for the glory of God. The standard of this love is Jesus' cross. He's also its source. You see, verse 35, Jesus says, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Why does he say this? Because true, selfless, sacrificial, self-emptying love comes from God alone. It can be explained by no other means and is therefore the distinguishing mark of God's people. Again, verse 35, by this, your love, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Notice what Jesus singles out as makes us compelling. You might think about what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13. Notice it's not our knowledge of Scripture, as important as that is, and it is. right. But you can know the Bible well and not be indwelt by the Word. Notice it's not acts of service to the outsider, as important as that is. But you can serve the lowly and not be trusting Jesus. Notice it's not loud singing or emotional responses to sermons. You can sing and cry and not love Jesus. What you can't fake over the long haul is the kind of love that Jesus gives. What distinguishes God's people is their love for one another, which mimics God's own love for them. It cannot come from any other source and cannot be explained by any other means. What is compelling to the world is the kind of love that is strange because it's inexplicable. Like, why are they serving each other? They should be enemies. Like, why are they eating together where they don't have anything in common? Like, why are they working so hard at their relationship when it seems so unnatural? Why do we do this, brothers and sisters? Because what God has done for us, as we saw last week, it is washed people who wash people, loved by God, people love the people of God. It can't not happen. To encourage you, brothers and sisters, I really think by God's grace, if our non-Christian friends spent meaningful time with us, they would say that this is true of us. Perfectly, no, but genuinely, yes. Like, well, why is it that they're serving each other and carrying each other and bearing such burdens that are so heavy? It's because they're disciples of Jesus. They're actually following Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we should pray as Paul instructed the Thessalonians that we would continue to love and to do it even more. When the gospel is the paradigm of the love that is required, we are barely scratching at its surface. Jesus brings us into one another that we might love each other. We are the people, the objects of his divine love. We are to trust Christ, we are to look to his cross, we are to love his people as he preserves us to the end. And lastly, we are to distrust our own flesh. We're to distrust our flesh. I think it's worth mentioning on the front end that there are serious differences, at least one between Judas and us. Again, if we trust Christ, we know as he wants us to see, he's chosen us. That means we've been united to him. That means though Satan may attack and tempt, he cannot indwell us in the same way. Brothers and sisters, if the Holy Spirit is indwelling you, there is a no vacancy sign on your heart. Yes, we're weak. 
Yes, Satan is strong, but God is stronger still. There is no contest. My kids, for whatever reason, have been asking a lot of questions about Satan. And they're like, who's stronger? They're trying to get a sense. They think it's like a fight. It's not like a fight. <laughs> you know, you struggle to give them metaphors. It's like, a, it's, like a, it's like a baby ant trying to fight against daddy. There's no chance. But not even. He completely transcends. There is no context. The text reminds us of God's sovereign power, but it also sobers us about our weaknesses. Calvin put this so well, speaking of the text, he wrote, the virtue of men being frail would tremble at every breeze and would be laid down by the feeblest stroke if the Lord did not uphold it by his hand. But as he governs those whom he has elected, all the engine which Satan can employ will not prevent them from persevering to the end with unshaking firmness. Satan cannot undo what God has done. He may try with all the power of heaven, but the rolls, with all the power of hell, but the rolls of heaven will not be missing one. Why does God then allow us to undergo trial? Why does he even allow us to fall away for a time? Calvin, again, he puts it so well. He says that they may not claim anything for themselves, but on the contrary may acknowledge that by the grace of God alone, by the grace of God alone and not by their own virtue, they differ from Judas. He places before them that election by free grace on which they are founded. Jesus would have us learn that the difference between Judas and us is not Judas or us, but God. It's a painful lesson that Peter's about to learn. Verse 36, Lord Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? He's like, forget about the, forget about the love stuff you just talked about. Where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow me later. Okay, death and departure from this world await Christ. It will come for all of us. It will come for Peter. Just not yet. Verse 37, Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. The irony is so thick, Peter could cut it with a sword. There's really a double irony here. Peter thinks he's going to lay down his life for Christ when really Christ is going to lay down his life for Peter and his failings. You see, in pride, we think that we are the ones that benefit God. Like God needs my preaching. He needs our discipling. He needs my giving. He's blessed by my counseling. No, brothers and sisters, we need God. Any good thing that we have is a gift from him. Peter doesn't understand. Someone's going to die that day. It's not him. In the second irony, Peter thinks his love for Jesus is so strong that he'll die for him. This is the measure of love. The highest of love, John 15, 13, is dying for a friend. J Peter thinks he loves Jesus so much he's going to die for him. Peter's love is so weak in his flesh, he won't even associate with Christ. Not once, but three times. We see this in verse 38. Jesus replied, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. One commentator summarizes it so well. He says, Peter thinks of himself as the hero when he comes dangerously close to playing the villain. This is the problem of pride. We think ourselves more highly than we ought to. The difference between Judas's betrayal and our perseverance, it isn't our wisdom or works or will, but the sovereign grace of God. Our problem in pride is that we think ourselves stronger than we are. We think ourselves immune to sin. And so we stay up too late at the computer. We linger too long at that person's desk. We order another round. We read books by authors who intend to harm us. We ingest media that disorders our desires. We download that app again. We cozy up to the world and to demonic teaching. We think ourselves stronger than we are. 
brothers and sisters, if you believe you can't get burned before you know it, you've jumped into the flames. Pride comes before the fall because fall because pride thinks too lowly of sin and too high of itself. I'll die for you. Will you? Brothers and sisters, you are weaker than you realize. It's actually a gift when we realize just how weak we are. From Judas to Peter, we get sober warnings. What does Judas teach us? You can walk among Christ and his people for years. Your feet could be baptized by Jesus himself into water and you still not be trusting him. You could take the Lord's Supper administered by Christ and that doesn't make you a Christian. What does Peter teach us? You could be the rock of the church, destined to die upside down on a cross and in a moment of prideful weakness deny that you've ever met the man. As Jess confessed in her prayer confession, some of us will praise God loudly on a Sunday and we're silent on a Monday. Brothers and sisters, rather than looking to your own gifts and patting yourself on the gap, we should be praising God for his mercies. We should be thanking him for his kindness. We should be fleeing our sin and running to the bosom of his son. We should be gathering with the saints like our souls depend upon it because they do. What we need is not to look to ourselves but to Christ. We need his grace today and tomorrow. We need his grace more than we can fathom because we're weaker than we understand. We need his grace and God happily supplies it. He happily supplies it to all who go to him in faith. The God who became man to wash our feet and die for our sins has not left us in the dark. Christ told us, John 18, those who follow him never walk in darkness. You have to follow him. Brothers and sisters, are you following him or are you playing in the shadows? Do you think you're stronger than you are? Do you distrust your own flesh? Do you trust Jesus more than yourself? What do we do when it seems like the darkness is winning? We look to Christ. What do we do when it seems like the church is losing? We look to the cross, which is the paradigm of success and victory and wisdom. What do we do when our friends start treating us like foes? We love the brothers and sisters that God has given us. What do we do when we fall and we know that we will? We go to God for his grace. To his un ending grace we look to the cross which is the place of glory when things seem so dark we look to the cross and there the glory of God shines forth this is what we do let's pray